Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy, everybody. We're so grateful that you are here with us. I mean it. Today, you're going to listen into us talking to Kelly Moore, who was beyond a treat. She is the CEO of Soulfire Productions, which is the premier podcast network for thought leaders, free thinkers, and visionaries. Kelly has also been the host of two top-rated podcasts, The Kelly Show and OK Babe. And she's deeply passionate about helping people see themselves more clearly. She's also, which I loved to find out, an uh, Emmy Award-winning former sports TV host with an eye for truth and an ear for bullshit, which is accurate. And she loves creating life-changing experiences for audiences and holding space for creatives to seek deeper within and become the most genuine expression of themselves. Yeah, I really loved her. I think there's so much about that that point that she talks about how um, she really challenges people to see themselves more clearly and all the ways that she, I don't know, gets into how our relationships can be a catalyst for that. And, you know, challenging some of our ideas about what partnership should be, what monogamy should look like, and how we can really utilize everything that comes to the surface for our healing. I just, I thought she was so smart and I just loved this conversation. This was one of those where we went into this conversation not having any idea where it was going to go, right? Like we always go in with some notes, some bullets, some ideas for questions, but I feel like this shit took a turn in the best way. And I remember when we hit end and we all logged off and you and I were like, damn, (laughs) that was... But also like what an intense and powerful conversation, right? And I remember like leaving the room, going out, talking to John about it and being like, we got to talk about all this shit that me and Danae just talked about with this girl, Kelly, you know, and um, it's just, it's resonated with me ever since. It was just one of those conversations that was transformational for me and has had like a lasting impact. And I kind of keep referencing it and going back to it. So I know if it did that for me, then it'll do it for other people too. Yes, Absolutely. But before we get into it, though, just a couple quick things. So because so many of you requested that we host more than just our one week long in-person retreat this year, we decided to do another one, you guys. So June 3rd through 10th, we are going to Nosara, Costa Rica, where we'll be leading another week long immersive retreat, this time with two of our dear friends and colleagues, Millie Murillo and Ashley Torrent, who are just such incredible, wise, sage sisters of ours. Um, And so um, we're going to get together and drawing from our collective work in the healing modalities of psychology, coaching, mediumship, astrology, somatic movement, and group processing. The three or the four of us, excuse me, (laughs) will be supporting you in reclaiming every aspect of the most fulfilling life you can possibly live. Um, So if you're interested in learning more, you can go to the link in either of our social bios or to Vanessa's website, which is vanessabennett.com. And pay plans are also going to be available for this one. Yeah. So we can email us about those and I can answer any questions you might have. And also remember, remember, please to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen most on, as well as give us a five-star rating and review. It does really support the podcast in reaching more people because as I always say, you know, algorithms. Also share this episode with a friend if it resonates because bottom line, word of mouth is still the best way to discover something new. So let's get to our conversation with Kelly. Today, we are talking to Kelly Moore, and I'm super excited actually to chat with you, Kelly, because um, you know when you when you reached out, I think your executive assistant reached out to me. I was like, oh, this this girl's intriguing. This woman is intriguing. I like the background. You know, you come from kind of the sports TV hosting world, which I actually went to school for the broadcasting shtick myself. And now you've kind of transitioned into more wellness, the podcast world, which Danae and I are in as well, obviously. And so I'm really just, you know, I want to get to know you a little bit better and, and kind of hear more about your story. So maybe we can start there for our listeners. We usually ask, you know, what was your, I suppose, your path or your journey that kind of led you to where you are right now? 
Yeah. So I was an athlete my whole life. I played volleyball and was recruited and went to USC and was captain of the team and all in that time knowing I wanted to be in television, which is why I chose USC over other schools because they had the best broadcasting school in the country. And so I really went for for volleyball and for broadcasting and started interning in LA at all the different networks and getting really good experience and had a really amazing volleyball experience as well. And then two years into my time at USC, I got really sick and Mm. was bedridden and no one knew what was wrong with me for about six months. I had gone from at 19 years old, being in the best shape of my life, one of the top players in the country to I couldn't walk and I was bent over and my leg was dragging behind me and I was in pain from head to toe. I couldn't see straight and it was insane. And I finally received a diagnosis, if you want to call it that. And um, they said I had fibromyalgia, which was, you know, considered an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. Here, take all these pills and you're never going to play again and go on with your life. And I'm just like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. So took that and was still really sick, really uncomfortable, not, you know, living life or thriving by any means. Um, and was still in college, but wasn't on the team anymore. And so I sort of dove headfirst into sports broadcasting, was hired by ESPN right after I graduated, you know, climbing the ranks in the television world while still being sick. I had, I ended up having chronic illness for about 14 years, hmm. finally got diagnosed around 27, um, properly from functional medicine doctor and Ayurvedic practitioners that I didn't have fibromyalgia. I had, uh, Epstein-Barr virus that had been activated in my body for most of my life after having mono my freshman year at USC, but no one ever did the test for that. And then I had uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, SIBO, leaky gut, um, all these different things that were contributing to me being super sick. So in a year and a half after working with the right doctors, I got better and haven't had an issue since. And around the same time as that was happening, I started looking at my life and I started putting, you know, the pieces together of I'm having all of these physical manifestations of illness. What's happening in my life that is causing this? Mm-hmm. What is it that's within my body that is causing my body to show so many signs of red flags and illness and disease? And what am I not paying attention to? And my functional medicine doctor really brought that to my attention because I talked to him about my work environment. Working in sports was one of the only women. I was a, you know, 20 something year old girl trying to make it being told you don't dress slutty enough. You dress too slutty. Make sure this guy likes you. It's fine if you're sexually assaulted. Don't worry about it. And so I just was in this toxic environment with a mother who raised me very manipulatively and narcissistically. And so I was super codependent and was a people pleaser and just tried to live my life for everyone else. And so in my late 20s, I just started to have all these aha moments and I had started to dive into personal development and spirituality and started to just ask questions I never had before. Mm -hmm. And I was sexually assaulted by a colleague, came forward about that publicly, ended my career um, because of that Mm -hmm. and just realized I can't keep living in this this cycle of toxicity and doing things for other people and betraying myself because I know that that's what's affecting my body. Mm -hmm. And so during the healing journey, left my job and I started over. Um, And so when I started over, I started the podcast. I really wanted to create female community. I wanted to have conversations and create resources for women to know that alternative healing existed, that you don't have to keep doing things that people tell you you're supposed to. Um, And just this sense of like freedom overcame me. And I wanted to share Mm. that narrative with other women because I had never really been exposed to that until my late 20s, early 30s. And it just sort of evolved over time and, you know, sexual awakenings and relationships and all the things that have come. Which, by the the way, we want to get into. Oh, yes. Happy to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And all those things. And then starting our podcast network with my now husband getting married. I'm pregnant now. So that's sort of the the short, long story. (laughs) So Kelly, when you said um, that the assault happened and that you ended up leaving, was that your choice to leave or was that the company that you were working for at the time? Will you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, um, I knew that coming forward was basically going to get me blacklisted from the industry. At the same point, I also knew I didn't want to be in it anymore. I don't even fucking like sports, if we're being honest. So (laughs) I was like, why am I doing this? But again, the people pleaser in me was like, I I lived my mom's dream. 
Mm. She always wanted to be a sports reporter. And I worked with all of her heroes and I had sit down interviews with Magic Johnson and, you know, worked with a lot of people that she looked up to her whole life. And so I think I just kept doing it because I got so much attention. You know, I was the hot young girl on TV and my mom was so proud of me and I'm Kelly's mom, you know, the whole thing. And I just was like, this isn't for me. I don't even like this. Who the fuck cares about home runs? The guys don't even care. They don't even want to talk, you know? And so it's like, it's just felt kind of stupid if I'm being honest. And I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I was making an impact on anyone's life other than being in a clubhouse and talking to the guys about real issues, not about how the game was, but about their wife who left them or their daughter who had an eating disorder. That's the kind of stuff that lit me up because I was supportive for them. Mm. Um, So I think it was sort of twofold. I don't think there was any way I was ever going to get hired again. And I also didn't want to get hired again because I realized that my time was definitely up. Go out with a bang. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and it just never ceases to amaze me that it's I know, right? where we are and that there's still like these blacklistings or, you know, like secrets that... Well, you know, to that point, it was so crazy to me because I think as women, we do this, especially we always think it's just us. I'm like, Mm. oh, Oh, it's just been me. Right. And I received hundreds of DMs from women in the industry who have been raped, assaulted, treated really horribly. And they all said, like, I can't come forward and I can't say anything because I know I'm going to lose my job. And it was sort of, you know, kind of fucked up way comforting because I was like, oh, it's not just me. I'm not crazy. And at the same point, it was the saddest thing ever because I just thought, wow, I, I saw myself. I, I burnt my life to the ground so that I could come forward because I couldn't live like this anymore. And how many of those girls and women would just continue to climb the ranks at every network, knowing what they were dealing with from top level management all the way down um, and just put up with it because they didn't want to give up their dream career. So I, um, obviously not to the extent or extreme, but I, so I made my way up in advertising. I was in advertising for like 10 years before switching to being a therapist, switching like it was a quick switch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I realized that word feels a little like that's not how it happened. Um, but there was just an early twenties, you know, good looking girl, like in that very machismo, very patriarchal men, you know, boys club. And just the number of times I remember looking around and like saying to other women, like, nobody, nobody's going to say anything. No one's going to, you know, and I used to get so angry that none of the men, and I guess I would maybe kind of say boys, I guess all of us that were together on the same team, same age in the creative department, like they almost, they never stood up for me either. And that always, I think that was actually more upsetting to me than the fact that I would look around at the women and be like, no one else is going to speak up about this. I would look to my friends, my guy friends and be like, you're not going to step up when you see the creepy president of this part of the company rubbing my shoulders when I'm sitting at the desk and just like straight eyeballing you. And like, you don't say anything, you know? So that was, I think probably the hardest thing for me in that business was just the the feeling of like the lack of support, I suppose, by like my friends. Yeah, because you realize later on, I'm sure after leaving that, that they were never your friends. You made them look good or you fit a role for them. As soon as I said one word, I think I have one producer and one talent that talked to me still. Every Mm. single other person in the business completely stopped talking to me. And I just realized that I was a person of convenience in their life. And it was never deeper than that. And that was a really hard pill to swallow, but it was also such a great sort of moment for me, so telling in that I got to start from scratch and cultivate real relationships after that. And I got to decide what those looked like and what they felt like. And I, because of what happened, I knew what I would and would not tolerate anymore. And I think when you are a young woman, there's, there's so much you tolerate with men or women. And there's so much toxicity in in a a variety of ways. It's not just sexually. Right. And it's like, I think sometimes it takes a moment like that for that to happen for us to really take a step back and say, what do I want to fill my life with? What Mm -hmm. will I tolerate? What won't I tolerate? What actually matters to me in friendship and relationships? And would I choose to go that route so I could learn that lesson? Not necessarily, but I am very grateful now because it completely redirected how I go about being in relationship with people professionally, personally, romantically now. Um, And I think that that's something that most people never have the opportunity to reevaluate in their lives. Yeah. It's it's so interesting. 
Kelly, as you're talking about it, because I think there's so much, I mean, we all know, like within the ether of like how the feminine is rising and we're really like having these questions or asking these questions about like, how do we interrupt these patterns? How do we put a stop to these toxic, you know, behaviors that are happening in so many work environments? And I was just thinking as you were talking about the men that were, you know, I thought these were my friends and then this happens and like nobody says anything or nobody has my back. And I'm always like, I guess because I'm a therapist, I, I really try to like drop into trying to understand the culture. Like, how does this happen? And I think there's so much, of, you know, the way that we also demand as a society that men perform masculinity and that, you know, you hear people talk about this in like police cultures a lot, that if you're the person that says like, hey, this isn't cool, you as well are the person that's mm-hmm. like, the community or you're not going to like keep your job and I just think it's I don't know I don't know how we go about making it safe to be the person that says something but um I think you know Vanessa and I talk a lot about how much patriarchy hurts men as well because it really strips them of their humanity and their ability to be friends with women without objectifying them or like yeah like see like this is how we act as a culture this Mm -hmm. is what we do to women and they have to partake in that and that really robs them of their humanity as well I just yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I mean, and I don't, I didn't have horrible experiences with every man that I worked with. Don't get me wrong. I had so many incredible male bosses, colleagues, players, um, you know, PR guys, assistant coaches that just took such good care of me mm-hmm. that treated me like their niece or their sister that really looked out for me. And I'm so grateful for them. And I think, you know, this is a conversation that my husband and I have a lot about the idea of toxic masculinity. And I think that there are men that have created toxic masculinity who are pieces of shit at the end of the day. Like, <laughs> let's just call it what it is. Um, and they've ruined it for good men. And now good men are scared and don't know, like, what's the line? Am I supposed to help? Am I supposed to step in? Am I supposed to, you know, back off and let her, you know, stand up for herself? Like, what do I do? And I think you're right. I think that the patriarchy and this like egoic, archaic male dominant sort of thing has really hurt men in a lot of ways. And it has confused men and women of Mm -hmm. how are we supposed to be in the world? And I think that at the end of the day, it's the willingness to get uncomfortable and have difficult conversations with yourself and those people around you. And I don't think most of us from a young age are ever taught how to do that, how to be uncomfortable and be okay with being uncomfortable and standing out and being the weird one who stands up for the kid getting bullied or whatever that is. I think it comes from our parents and their lineage of they didn't teach us how to do this. And so now it's this really foreign concept and what am I supposed to do? And so it, it, the pendulum swings and men just become these like dicks and, you know, treat people poorly in response to that rather than really dropping into themselves and saying, what feels right for me in this moment? What feels mm-hmm. right for me might be to, you know, stand up for this woman and say, that's not okay. Even if it makes my teammate mad at me, right. I don't care because I'm so rooted in who I am, but they don't even know how to mentally have that conversation. And so it just gets bypassed and turns into this toxicity and aggression. And then how do you wrangle that back in with someone who is unaware and emotionally unavailable? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because I know for me, like a lot of same, same with what you just said, like a lot of these guys are all still my really good friends. And what I've kind of watched happen is they've turned into dads. And as they've turned into dads, I've seen a lot of transformation in pretty much all of them, to be honest, um, in the conversations they're having, in the way they're showing up, you know, whether it's showing up in their own homes or just showing up in social forums is very different, I think, than when we were like in our 20s, which makes sense, right? Um, I mean, I show up very differently than I did in my 20s. I know who I am more now, right? Or at least a little bit more every day. <laughs> and I, I do hope that also, I don't know, Danae and I talk about this a lot about how we, how do I articulate this? Like, I want to also provide a platform or a space for them, these kind of guys to come to me and have these kind of hard conversations and not like you said, it's like that confusion of like, how do I do it right? How do I not do it right? How do I show up? And by being somebody I hope is like safe enough to talk about this stuff with, they'll be able to 
have a little bit more of that awareness or find that voice or find that inner knowing um, because a lot of them don't have spaces that they can be really real and have these conversations, right? Like we just, my partner and I just led a couples retreat this past weekend and two, well, three of the couples that were there, um, two of the couples that were there, both men, Latino, one ex-cop, and to see them show up in the ways that they were showing up and asking the questions that they were asking and really challenging a lot of these kind of cultural uh, narratives, right? And cultural like boxes that they're put in was so refreshing and so beautiful. And and they all, both of those guys in particular expressed like, it's being able to have this, this like format of circle and community and other men that are here asking and challenging themselves that then allows me to feel safe enough to do the same. Um, and also they said the same thing for the women. But anyway, I just think that that's also part of this, right? Is like us, us creating these spaces to have these conversations or for them, them too. Yeah, I think safety is such an important aspect of all of this. And I mean, I'm preaching the choir here to both of you, but I even witnessed this in my husband. You know, mm. he was, um, both of his parents were addicts, left him at five years old. Um, he was raised by his grandparents, very small town, Texas. And he, you know, had a really tough time with both trusting men and women. And he, up until this day has had a really hard time making male friends and feeling like he can be vulnerable and connect with them. And then he's never really had healthy relationships with women. And our relationship is the first time where I think he has felt safe enough to explore parts of himself he never has before and to ask questions he never has and to say, I don't know, like something is wrong. I'm upset. And instead of, you know, flipping the switch and just getting super angry, really asking himself what's wrong. I don't think most men get to a point in their lives where they feel that safety. Mm -hmm. And there is, you know, the mommy and daddy issue memes, like across the board, most of them are probably pretty accurate. I have my own issues with my parents. <laughs> um, I think that's most of like, most of us are dealing with that. And that frames the way we show up in the world and right. the way we relate to both men and women. And I think until you can find some sort of safety in your life where you do feel like I can bring up these topics that are confusing or uncomfortable for me, then there's the work can't be done because you just mm -hmm. don't feel safe to even open up. And so then you just go back to these old patterns and belief mm -hmm. systems that weren't even created by you, but you're just perpetuating the same cycles. And then we hand it down to our kids and here right. we are. Kelly, I really, I love that you brought that up because I think that's something that we don't talk about very often is how little men feel safety with other men or how rarely they feel safety with other men. And that's such a consistent theme I hear in the men that I work with. And these are men that are actively seeking therapy, but um, that, yeah, if, if I feel like, and there's so many ways that I do think that we as women have been socialized to perpetuate some of these patriarchal ways of holding what a man needs to be and man up and like all of, all of these things that like we're often holding our, our husbands and our partners and, these ways as well. And so there's literally nowhere for them to go a lot of times to cultivate these tools that you're talking about. Like we as women are socialized to do a lot of this connecting with our friends, have these conversations from very young. But a lot of times we're saying like, stop being toxic without any sort of a guideline on what that means or how to do that. It's like, go fly that jet. And they're like, I don't know how to fly a jet. Like what? <laughs> demanding that I fly a jet. And it's literally what we're asking them to do after a lifetime of being told that they're not allowed to be. Well, and human. then they, they start to fly the jet and then we critique the way that they fly the jet. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm, you know, it's being pregnant has been really interesting because my son, my, my husband, my husband is an incredibly sensitive teddy bear of a man, but he has this very hard exterior to, as a protective mechanism, like it's pretty clear. And he doesn't, he doesn't really know how to tap into holding space or letting me be super emotional. And we went through IVF. So I was a raging psycho for much <laughs> of this year on hormones and then getting pregnant extra. Um, and it's been interesting watching him learn how to drop into being sensitive and hold space mm. and not need to run in and fix. And it really has been such a learning curve for him. And I'm so proud of him because 
not that he's the best at it, but he has really leaned into, okay, what can I do differently? Or how could I show up for Kelly? Or how, how can I listen to what she needs right now? And yeah, sometimes it does take us getting in a fight and me getting really upset for him to hear me. And I understand that it takes that sometimes, but I'm just so impressed with the way he's responded and has allowed himself to grow in that way. And again, I think it comes back to safety and it, it comes back to men having a space where they can learn and screw up and try again and just keep doing it. And not that I want to mother him or always have to hold space for him to learn and go through his process. But I do think that that's really important, especially knowing that he didn't have strong you know, mother figure as a young child that I sort of get to play that role for him too. Just like he gets to play the role of parenting for me when I turn into a little girl and I'm freaking out and he gets to hold the space for me to process whatever I'm going through. It's like, how can we really allow our partners to be seen and held and heard maybe for the first time in their lives so that they can in turn learn how to reciprocate that. Because I think at the end of the day, and maybe you two have a different perspective, but I think we're all just like wounded little kids running around in adult bodies, still trying to figure it out. And if we don't have someone that we can turn to, to help us navigate that, whether it's a therapist, a partner, a friend, whatever, then we just keep doing the same old thing. And I like to think that if we're going to change these patterns and break these, you know, ancestral cycles that we have to show up for that with each other in order to do that, you know, especially as a baby is literally growing in my body saying, no, we're not going to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think another element that you spoke to that's important is it just can't be us in the silo of our partnership, because then I think it is too much. And they do start to feel like really parent-child dynamics, which and we're going to get into like some of the other, like the erotic other of our partner, which when I work with couples, what I see so much is like, yes, we're doing a lot of this reparenting work for our partner, but that has consequences too. And I think men need community. They need other men that they can have actual conversations with about like, no, but how are you doing really, you know? And I think that we used to be more collectivist societies where we held space for that. And it wasn't just us and our little nuclear family box system, um, depending on just this other person. But I think it's not enough. Like we need more people in our lives that we really tell the truth about what's happening in our internal spaces. Yeah, I love that. Um, let me ask you, Kelly, to kind of kind of shift. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about, I mean, I guess this is kind of your baby before your baby, but the podcast network that you started. <laughs> I mean, was, was this kind of, I guess, the podcast and then it turned into the podcast network, right? And then your podcast, mm-hmm. you kind of decided to stop. Um, I'm assuming to put more energy and effort into maybe the network, right? So how did this baby kind of come out, you know, come to be? Because you were doing your own thing and you were doing pretty good at it. And then was it just kind of this desire to like amplify other voices? Yeah, you know, so I had someone ask me about my why for everything I do when I was on a podcast, I think last month. And it was so cool for me to reflect on this. I realized in that moment that... My why is because I don't want people to feel alone and isolated. And I was suicidal when I was 12. And I came home from school in seventh grade, the first week of school. And I just kept telling my mom. And luckily, she had created a dynamic where I could talk to her. And I said, you know, I I don't want to live anymore. I just keep having these thoughts about killing myself. And, you know, she didn't really know what to do other than you know, I hear you. And she took me to the counselor and immediately. And the next week they had jumped me up to eighth grade. And it was so good for me because I just, I didn't fit in. I was six, one at 11 years old. I was a really good volleyball player. I was a really good student. And I just, I wasn't challenged and it was just really hard for me. And all my friends were older. Mm. And so everything comes back to that experience for me. It's, so important for me for people to feel like they belong, like they have community, like they're okay just as they are. And when I started the podcast initially, I really did start over. I had to find people in wellness, people in podcasting, people were having these kinds of conversations because I only knew people in sports and I basically had no female friends because Mm. I didn't have a life and I only worked with men. And so I just realized how important it was for me to have community. And at the same time, I was working with a podcast production company that just didn't care about anything beyond the transactional relationship of let me just edit your podcast and here you go. 
there was no sort of, let me hold your vision or let me help you strategize or, hey, so-and-so just took off and their podcast is doing amazing. Let me connect you. Or this is what they did to help. Mm. And I just thought that was kind of bullshit, to be honest. And I had just come out of a place where people didn't help you um, unless you could do something for them. And I wanted to change that narrative because I realized if I was going to have community and real relationships, there has to be some sense of helping each other Mm -hmm. and transparency. And so I came together with my now husband and a girl who had worked at the production company that I had been at. Um, and she's now our COO and we created the foundation for soul fire which is all about community and transparency and supporting podcasters in their growth. And so we, we really wanted to take out all the logistics from the creators because I knew I had like four different teams working on my show, you know, creating artwork and then marketing and the actual podcast itself. And I felt like I was babysitting everyone and nothing was cohesive and it was just a full-time job. And I just thought there has to be a better way. You're preaching to the choir again on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, there has to be a better way. So we just basically took everything in-house. So we do everything now. We create everything, all the assets for you. We edit, we create all the marketing materials, all the videos. Um, We strategize, we do analysis calls. We look at your business holistically, how the podcast supports you. We do consulting calls. Um, We do everything. And I love it because at the end of the day, it's a group of people with a like-minded vision that we want to have conversations that really push boundaries and shift the narrative that has been, you know, pressed upon us for so long. Most of our shows are in personal development, spirituality, sexuality, and they really go off and they say the thing that you're quote unquote, not supposed to say. And I love that. <laughs> You know, we we saw that love like hell. Christy and Rainier were on your network, and they are they are loves of ours. We've had Rainier on twice. We had Christy on once, and and we just oh, I want to eat them up. <laughs> yeah, they're the best. I love them so much. Um, okay, so I want to take another hard turn because this is something Zanae and I were kind of like chomping at the bit to talk talk to you about. So, one of the things that we saw as kind of a point that you would be willing to talk about, right, is this idea of bisexuality and non-monogamy in your relationship. And it's, I don't know if you've talked about this recently since being pregnant. So I don't know if this is going to be an interesting conversation to have or more interesting conversation to have now that you're on this path, you know, this, this specific path and journey point, point of your path. There we go. Um, <laughs> but I guess where does that play in, right? Like, was this, was this part of kind of a larger awakening? I'm assuming kind of, I'm not even going to go there. You, you tell me kind of where does that fit in? Yeah. So when I first met Connor, um, I, we had been dating for a couple months and I had just done my first ayahuasca experience. I had just come out of a long relationship. I had had an abortion. I, you know, had quit my job. I had burnt everything to the ground. I was like this little baby Phoenix rising, <laughs> like figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And, um, asking a lot of really hard, uncomfortable questions about what was true for me, what I had been taught, um, and what needed to change. And something that kept coming up was this desire for women and attraction to women. And I started to put a few pieces of the puzzle together, like when I was in college, if I drank enough tequila, I'd end up making out with a girl. Or, you know, one time I was at this party with a friend of mine and she and I ended up staying at our friend's house and we slept in the same bed. And the next morning when we woke up, she looked at me and she was like, do you remember what you did to me last night? And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, (laughs) you were just snuggling me and touching me and doing all the things. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. She's like, no, it was totally fine. But I just think you should know you were doing this. And so it was moments like that where I just... I had this like deep desire to be with women, but I had to be completely inebriated to even think about what that would look like. And Mm. so when Connor and I started dating, I knew he was super open-minded. We met through our podcasts. I had listened to almost all of his shows um, and fallen in love with him through that. So I, I knew his personality and I knew he'd be open to this conversation. And I just said, I'm having these feelings. I don't really know what to do with them, but I wanted to let you know. 
And so he really helped me sort of process what that looked like because I felt, you know, I was raised Catholic by conservative parents in a small town in Southern California. And I didn't even know what bisexual was until a few years ago. Um, and I didn't know that alternative relationship styles were a thing. And so it was all, it was very overwhelming. I felt a lot of shame. I, my whole thing, my entire life was my biggest fear was disappointing my parents. And all I mm. could think about was you're going to disappoint your parents. You're disgusting. What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. And so he really did such an amazing job of holding the space for me to figure out what this even meant. And then shortly thereafter, we'd had a lot of conversations and he brought forward, like, I've wanted to be in a relationship with a woman who is interested in having different experiences, whether she's bisexual or just like open to some sort of non-monogamous relationship. So then we had to go down that whole fucking rabbit hole. (laughs) And I learned real quick who like Chris Ryan was and open relationships and non-monogamy. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is a lot. I think I'm going to have a panic attack. Um, Because I'm a serial monogamist and I don't even know what this means. And I have the most jealous bone in every part of my body. And so then we went down that rabbit hole and just had a lot of uncomfortable conversations and a lot of self-discovery. And um, and then probably six months into all of this, finally had our first experience with someone else. She was a really good friend of mine. So it was super safe. I felt really comfortable. And it was awesome. And I remember thinking afterwards... First of all, that was so much easier and more flowy than I ever thought it would be. And second, I need more of this because that Mm. felt like it fulfilled a part of me that had been so empty and so suppressed forever. Mm. And so that's sort of how it came to be. I have so many questions. (laughs) I'm looking at today's face like, are you going to say something? I'm just loving it. I mean, I think. And I, I don't know. I think there's so many, I mean, again, coming back to what is suppressed often um, within us as women, I think whatever that looks like in terms of our, our sexuality and the exploration of what is true for us, it's just such a consistent theme. And I feel like there's so much about the puritanical nature of our society in general that, I mean, oh my God, like the resistance to exploring our sensuality is just like such a consistent, like that I find clients won't even go there with themselves and within the conversation. There's so much resistance. It's like, I don't want to, I'm looking for another word other than brainwashing, but it really is to a certain extent, like we are brainwashed to feel like there is shame around being sexual beings, which we are. There was something when you said like, I I just felt like this like flow of like, I want more of this. I was just so in my body, like, yes, that's literally what it feels like when you realize something that has been dormant for so long is just um, liberated is the only word that comes to mind. It's beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. And I love that you kind of found a partner that was, I don't want to say willing to, because that almost feels like a little bit like permission giving, but I, I suppose maybe had enough insight into himself, especially as, I, I mean, a, a male, I mean, based on what we were talking about, right, in this society to be able to say, like, I want to explore this, but I want to explore it within the structure of a partnership, right? And it sounds like you guys have a pretty like open, vulnerable, committed relationship and you're both open to having these kind of conversations. I'm curious when you said you have all these jealous bones in your body because I've talked about this like almost like a desire of myself to explore some of this, but I'm like very not jealous, like almost to the other extreme where like I'm a bit avoidant about it where I'm like, I, I feel zero jealousy about anything. And I know I have a lot of work to do in that. My oh my therapy. God. Can I have some of that, please? <laughs> <laughs> I know we could share a little bit. I probably could take a little yeah. bit of yours because I feel like sometimes <laughs> my partners or my friends even might want me to feel a little bit like jealous and protective. And I'm like, whatever, do you, you know, um, but <laughs> what was that like for you kind of having this jealous bone? Cause I'm assuming you had to do some work around that. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, just say the least. <laughs> oh girl, we still in it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good to um, know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a lifelong thing for me. I think, uh, I've gotten a lot better being pregnant and super primal and protective of my relationship and his baby is inside of me and, and all the hormones definitely brought back a lot of my insecurities and jealousy that I thought I had worked through. But I'd also like to give myself a little grace there, knowing that 
this is like a very specific experience that does that. And I think that it's totally normal. Um, but God, I mean, jealousy is such a bitch and I understand its role. And I think it is important. And I think it teaches us a lot about ourselves and it shows us where we get to do work. It, it can also show us, you know, red flags and things that make us uncomfortable and things that are no's for us. And Mm -hmm. I I get all that. I'm here for all of that. I don't believe in bypassing any of that. Um, And I think that jealousy is a valid emotion and part of the human experience. And for me, jealousy is so deeply rooted in my abandonment wound that I have had to sit with the feeling of not being enough not lovable. And what if they leave me over and over and over and over again? And that is not Connor's problem. And Connor hasn't done anything to make that be a problem, right? But I came into the experience with that belief system and pattern in my body. And so, so much of my practice has been when I'm uncomfortable and jealous, asking myself why I'm uncomfortable and jealous. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's because I don't feel like my needs are being met by him in a one-on-one monogamous relationship level. And so when he goes and, you know, talks about another woman or we have an experience with another woman and I feel like she's getting the attention or whatever it is, I feel like I'm not getting one-on-one with him, then we have to address, okay, what is our relationship look like? Mm -hmm. And what is it that I need from you or from myself to feel safe and comfortable in exploring this other experience. Yes. Um, and that just, that's something that I speak to so much is radical honesty and being willing again to have hard, hard conversations with myself because I think that so often we're just not willing to ask these questions and we're, because we don't want to hear the answer. We don't want to or know how to take responsibility for ourselves and our experiences. So we're constantly projecting on other people. Oh, he did this to me. He made me feel like this. Well, actually, there's something going on in my body and he may be making it worse or he may be triggering it within me, but he has nothing to do with what happened to me when I was seven or Mm -hmm. the emotional unavailability of my parents. Like that's not Connor's fault. And so I keep coming back to... What is my responsibility here? How can I voice my discomfort and say, hey, when you did this, like one time he was having sex with a girl on a couch and I was on the bed and it made me very uncomfortable and insecure and made me feel like I was being left out. And I told him after, I don't like when you're both not looking at me. It makes Mm. me feel left out and it's really triggering for me. Can we not do that again until I feel more comfortable? And he totally was like, I get that. That makes so much sense. So we didn't do that again for like a long time. And now I'm fine with it. Mm. But it's little, little moments like that, where I take responsibility, responsibility for my experience. I say, I'm feeling insecure or left out, or this hurt my feelings because X, Y, Z. And I understand that this isn't necessarily your fault, but what you did made me feel this way. So could we maybe take a step back from that thing um, so that I can sort of work through that and have more time and not feel like I'm being pushed beyond my limits. And mm-hmm. then we can revisit that down the line. And that's been probably the healthiest and best way we've been able to navigate it. And it's, it doesn't always look that beautiful and amazing, but that's the best case scenario. (laughs) I love it. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating because I feel like as I work with couples, I'm so often like, I really believe that we are meant to shift out of some of these codependent ownership templates that we've all been raised with and that you do not have ownership over any other sovereign being. And yet, like when it comes to me and how I feel in relationships, I'm sort of the opposite of Vanessa. I'm very much like, I could feel the activation in my body. It's you were sort of like describing the couch scenario. I was like, yeah. I can see your body language getting uncomfortable, by the way. You, Danae, you have no poker face. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> For those listening, she is squirming and slightly sweating judging me. I'm like, I'm not judging. Oh my God. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I think the inquiry that you're talking about is so important because there's something about, would you be willing to 
hold space for what is coming up for me versus like, you did this thing. Yeah. You are responsible for how I'm feeling. Um, yeah, it just, it feels like the precipice of something that we are, I believe, collectively expanding into. Um, thank you for being a pioneer, Kelly. You're welcome. <laughs> did you did you sign up knowing you were a pioneer? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I think I'm such a hot mess with all this. And I like Connor and I were we were interviewed for this polyamorous show, I don't know, like three weeks ago. And we were in the kitchen like an hour before. And he's like, I don't know why they fucking want to talk to us. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, we don't even do anything. We haven't we've barely done anything in a year. Like you have been so insecure and upset about all of this stuff. You when I was first doing IVF, I came to him and I was like, you made me do this. I don't even like women like you. You manipulated me. It was a whole thing. Right. <laughs> And he's like, I don't know why anyone thinks that we have the right to talk about this. And so it's so funny because I get where he's coming from, right? Like we've, we've definitely had a lot of scenarios that did not go well. And we've been on totally different pages. And then going through IVF and getting pregnant has thrown a ginormous wrench in the whole thing. We, he and I barely have sex anymore, let alone, you know, having someone else come in. So it's so funny because I think I'm, I'm like, we're so bad at this, but I actually think that we're a lot better than we give ourselves credit for because we're even willing solely because we're willing to have the hard conversations and we're willing to share desires and we're willing to say, like, I really like watching Connor have sex with other women. I, it is such a thing for me. I really enjoy it. And I said to him the other day, I was like explaining the scenario to him and he was like, um, he was laughing at me and I was like, does this make me weird or a bad person? He was like, that you like your hu- like to watch your husband fuck other women? Yeah, you're a fucking freak. And he was just like making fun of me. <laughs> I'm red and sweaty now. And he and I was and we were just laughing. And I was like, I love that I could just casually tell him about this thing that I've been thinking about. And we just laughed about it. And it wasn't like you're gross, you're wrong. He's like, Yeah, you're a fucking freak. It's amazing, you know? And <laughs> So I think just the ability to be honest is such a big part of this, whether or not you ever did anything or whether or not it worked out or not. I just feel like I can say the crazy thing that I'm like, this kind of turned me on and he's totally going to accept it and say, okay, does it happen? Maybe or maybe not. Maybe in the moment I don't like it. That's happened too. But at least I got to verbalize myself and feel free in that experience. I'm obsessed. I know, me too. (laughs) I really am because I, you know, I just think so often there's so little intimacy, really. Yes, true intimacy. Like this is intimacy and it's not, it's enmeshment or codependency or attachment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Attempting to maintain attachment. And what you're describing is to me what actual intimacy looks like. And no, nobody's going to do intimacy perfect. And no, we're going to like always feel a little bit activated throughout our lives. That's what we came here for. But also you guys are in it and you're really holding space for one another to have those honest conversations. Like it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think for us too, like Connor and I are both extremely codependent and we have a very codependent relationship when we know that and COVID made it way worse for sure. Um, We work together. We're best friends. We work from home. We love to do adventures together, all these things. So like the way we live our lives creates a lot of codependency and I think that that's why this is such a big part of our relationship. And even just being able to talk about it while I'm pregnant and we're not actually engaging with other people is because we have very different um, ways of going about life. We have very different interests in other people and who he's attracted to versus who I'm attracted to. And I think it allows us to maintain some sort of sovereignty and self-exploration and curiosity within the the confines of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And we both very much want to be married and want to be together and don't plan on having separate partners or anything like that. Um, And so it's like, how can we, within the boundaries of our relationship and respecting each other and knowing we're best friends and do everything together, how can we also have this other part of us that really feels separate and different and where we can be honest about, Hey, I'm like really attracted to this woman. 
you know, I was thinking about doing this with her, whatever it is. And him saying, yeah, that's super hot. And then it enhances our sex life when we're alone. Yes. So I think that it's also us being aware of our codependency and how we keep feeding that fire is how can we also create a fire over here that feels like it's making our relationship better. And we're also getting to maintain our sovereignty and not just, you know, that deep enmeshment that I think both of us definitely go back to that pattern. Challenge that you guys are so pleased because to regulate your own nervous system and that you know you're taking responsibility for the inquiry, which to me is the work of interdependence. Totally, like you guys, it sounds like you have a beautiful best friend in your partner, but I don't think that's necessarily codependent, right? Like, really? Oh my god, Mm -hmm. tell me more. I love it. Yeah, codependency (laughs) is not like we're together all the time. And I hear you as someone who's taking a lot of personal responsibility. For doing that for yourself. So I just want to name what Kelly is describing is not what not is <laughs> it's having a really like solid yeah. best yeah. friend in your partner. I think that's beautiful. I don't Thank you. That I feel so much more evolved than when we started this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I Therapist think that's a really, stamp of approval. A really good point, Danae. I think that I mean look, this is part of what Danae and I talk about all the time is like there is a lot of like if it's like misunderstanding or just the way that we think about codependency in this culture. And I, I think really so much of it boils down to, it's not necessarily that like you guys are together all the time or you have all these overlaps or all these shared, whatever points in your life. It's really more about to Danae's point. Are you actually taking responsibility for yourself, your own emotions, your own emotional regulation? Um, are you outsourcing it? Are you blaming somebody else for it? Right. Um, and so, you know, the way that I always say it, it's like the simplest way that I can describe codependency is, if you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you find that to be your pattern, that the only way that you can be good is if this other person is good, there's some codependency there that has to be looked at. Right. But yeah. now, of course, we're going to, we're going to feel like if my partner is not good, of course, I'm going to be like, Oh my God, I can feel that what's wrong, but I don't take responsibility for that. I don't also go down with him. Right. And he doesn't put the responsibility on me to fix it either. That is the work of interdependence, right? And so what you're speaking to, at least from our perspective, we're not in your relationship, feels to Danae's point, a lot more like working towards interdependence than it actually does codependency. So therapist stamp of approval for sure. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I I think that's something we worked on a lot too, is because we, we did that a lot. It was like, yeah. if you're good, I'm good. If you're not, I'm fucked up. And yep. I think that understanding how the other person communicates and how they're best communicated with has really helped us with that. So um, my response every time Connor would be upset is to like get in his face and hold him and let's talk about it and ask him a million questions. And then he would get super defensive and he would start yelling. It was like this whole dynamic. And one day I finally realized he needs space. So I started, he would be on the couch and we'd be having, you know, whatever, he'd be all upset. And I would just pull up a chair And I would sit across from him, give him like 10 feet of space. I wouldn't stand over him or hover him. I wouldn't try and touch him. And all of a sudden, all of his barriers came down and he'd be like, this is what's bothering me and blah, blah, blah. And I would just listen. I wouldn't ask questions. I would just let him talk. And he started to realize that when I would be upset rather than get upset with me, I usually just want to be held and told it's okay. And so he would just come in and be like, I hear you, like, hold me, let me cry on his shoulder. And we would just move through things so much faster. So we didn't have to meet the other person where they were, especially if I'm having a great day and he's fucking hostile as shit. And I'm like, oh, here we go. I could just maintain me being good and just sit across from him and let him voice whatever. And then he feels heard. And then we move through it and vice versa, same thing. And that really allowed us to maintain, again, our sovereignty and our own experience and not deep dive with the other person. Mm -hmm. And it sort of started healing a lot of those wounds of neither of us ever feeling seen or heard when we were younger. Mm -hmm. So then it created more safety in the relationship, which then I think in turn created our ability to have more of these conversations and share our desires and feel like I can say the crazy thing and you're not going to walk away. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Attunement is blowing my mind, first of all. 
And I just, I'm really glad that you came on, Kelly, because I feel like a lot of times the pushback that Vanessa and I get with what we talk about in terms of relationships is that we're sort of like advocating for hyper-independence, which we are not. Um, but I don't think we have a ton of models societally of what it looks like to be in the work and to actually still really be connected and loving my partner well, but actually loving the person who's in front of me and like tuning into what would loving them well be and feel like. And so... I mean, you guys are amazing. This is just like <laughs> blowing my mind and for coming and articulating what an example of that really sounds like. You know, I think it's important that we hear more examples of that. Okay. We have a lightning round of questions that we ask all of our guests. I know you have, um, we want to be respectful of your time because I know you have a hard stop. So let's dive into those. And then also I want to make sure that our listeners know where to find you and where they can connect with you and all that jazz. Um, so cool. you want to kick it off? No, we, no, we want to keep you. Okay. So we keep you. Um, <laughs> greatest teachers, mentors, people that have inspired you along your journey up to this point, Kelly. Did you say who are they? I'm sorry. I missed the beginning. Who um, God, funny. yeah. I mean, I would say my mom, um, definitely one of my greatest teachers, although our relationship was really difficult. She passed away a couple of years ago. Um, really difficult. It really shaped who I am in so many ways. And I still feel deeply connected to her um, and learn from her still in the way I show up in the world um, and becoming a mother and all of those things. And then um, I had this amazing fourth grade teacher named Mrs. Jones. And this is something that happened in her class is something that still affects me on a daily basis. I remember I didn't want to raise my hand in class one day. I didn't understand something she said. And and I didn't want to raise my hand because I didn't want to feel dumb. I really don't like feeling dumb. And I usually am the one with the answers. So I walked up to her after class and I said, um, can you explain whatever to me? Because I didn't understand. And she said, why did you raise your hand when I said, does anyone have any questions? I said, because I didn't want people to think that I was dumb. And she said, Kelly, you're the smartest person in my class. You have the best grades. And if you don't raise your hand, don't you think that everyone else probably has the same question? So if you don't raise your hand, how are you going to help anybody also have an answer? And so that really shaped the way I show up. I'm always the first to raise my hand if I don't understand something, because I realize that if I don't understand it, most likely someone else doesn't either. That made me emotional. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. It was amazing. Go Mrs. Jones. Um, <laughs> Yeah. She was like 4'11". You guys, I was, this is such an aside, but she was like 4'11". I was, it was fourth grade. So I was probably 5'10". And they had to bring me in a desk from the high school. <laughs> and I had this tiny little teacher. And then I had this desk that was like five inches higher than everybody else's. And I also had transi transition lenses and a unibrow and braces. I was really amazing. <laughs> So thank Whoa. God for Mrs. Jones. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I would say Connor. Connor is my greatest teacher, my greatest mirror, and he pisses me off on a daily basis. And I wouldn't have it any other way because he just shows me so much of myself and where I get to look more deeply within myself to free myself of old patterns. And Connor has really shown me how to have fun and that I get to be fun and that I don't have to have a stick up my ass all the time and that <laughs> life doesn't have to look the way I thought it did. It can be even more amazing. So yeah, I think he's, he's definitely my greatest teacher in this iteration of life. So this idea of flow, right? So when you're in that state mm -hmm. of like, you can blink your eyes and six hours goes by, what are you doing when you find yourself in flow? Oh gosh. I'm either in nature um, walking with the dogs, hiking, um, on mushrooms, just really present, um, and really grounded. Um, and I also find myself in that state in the mornings. Now I carve out about two hours every morning. I'm up around five with the dogs and we just sit on the couch and I have my coffee and I read or I journal, or I just look outside. Um, we're lucky to live on a mountain. So I have a really nice view and scenery here and, and I just find myself all of a sudden hours have passed and I've just been so present and so calm. Um, so those are probably the, the two biggest areas of flow for me. We'll have to have you back once you have a baby and I'll ask you about your yeah. mom's again. <laughs> it's been um, one of my greatest struggles about coming yeah. like excited. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and Kelly, what breaks your heart? Um, what breaks my heart is when people feel alone. Um, 
and like they have nowhere to turn. There was um, last week, this uh, bakery that we go to about 20 minutes from here, we found out the owner killed himself mm. and he has three young kids and a wife and he's so beloved in the community. And I, I never met him. I don't, I don't know him personally or his family. I just love their bread, but I've just watched the outpouring of love and support for this man and how many lives he's changed. Mm. And I just kept thinking it really fucked me up. And I was just like, it makes me so sad and it breaks my heart to think this man took his own life and I don't know why, but he was so loved and it seemed like there were so many places he could have turned for help and support. And it's like the outpouring of love is amazing and yet he's not here to experience it. And where is this when we're alive? Yes. You know, I feel that with my community and my closest friends, I know I can turn to them and I have um, in really dark moments and they build me up and they support me and they cheer me on and they remind me of who I am, even when I'm questioning everything. And as someone who has sat with, I don't want to be here anymore. Life is too hard. I just keep thinking, how can we create more of a dynamic when people are alive, where they do feel cheered on and loved and supported this powerfully that they think I want to be here and I want to fight for this. And mm. Yeah, it just, it makes me really sad. Mm. So beautiful. Um, okay, last question. What is your favorite food? I know, it's a doozy. Oh, my mom's chicken tacos. I'm half oh. Mexican and she was the best cook and her chicken tacos were just to die for. So I miss them deeply. My brother actually makes them pretty well. So he's coming for Christmas and I might make him whip them up because <laughs> damn, they're good. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, make a pregnant lady some chicken tacos. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Kelly, tell our listeners where they can find you and connect with you more. Yeah, on Instagram, I'm at Kelly T. Moore, um, Soulfire Productions Co. And then the website is soulfireproductionsco.com and kellymore.co. I'm just going to second Mrs. Jones. You are such an unbelievably wise, inspiring, incredible woman. Such a pleasure to meet you, Kelly. Truly. Thanks for coming. Thank on. you both so much. Thank you. I really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. <laughs>